Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, The Clinical Significance of Imaging in the Management of AD-PKD, is jointly provided by Axis Medical Education and Novus Medical Education, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Atsuka. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this webcast titled The Clinical Significance of Imaging in the Management of Patients with ADPKD. I'm Dr. Jimmy Lee, Associate Professor of Radiology with the University of Kentucky. I'm joined today by one of the foremost experts in the study of ADPKD, Dr. Arlene Chapman. Dr. Chapman, please introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks so much, Dr. Lee. Um, it's very nice to be here with you, uh, and I am currently a professor of medicine and chief of the section of nephrology at the University of Chicago. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated for providing the independent educational grant to support this presentation. And as you can see here, Dr. Chapman and I report the following financial disclosures. Okay, well, let's uh, review the learning objectives for this webcast. Upon its conclusion, participants should be able to summarize the strengths and weaknesses of diagnostic modalities to determine how to properly calculate TKB, apply the criteria for diagnosing ADPKD using abdominal imaging, describe the applications of diagnostic data to determine whether a patient is considered a rapid progressor, summarize the role of radiologic imaging uh, plays in the management of patients with ADPKD. So uh, Dr. Chapman, I'll just go ahead and turn it over to you for an overview of the disease process. Thanks, Dr. Lee. So autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease is often acronymed ADPKD. It is the most common inherited kidney disorder and the most common genetic cause of renal failure. It was first described more than 300 years ago in the King of Poland, uh, and it's characterized by relentless kidney cyst growth, often leading to hypertension and ultimately renal failure. It's a multi-system disease, and it is slow and progressive. And even though this is an inherited disorder, patients typically seek medical care in adulthood. There are between one in 500 and one in 1,000 individuals with ADPKD, yet only 300,000 are diagnosed in the United States. It is the fourth most common cause of renal failure, and it's responsible for 5 to 10% of patients undergoing dialysis therapy or receiving renal transplantation. Here is a very nice image of a normal kidney in the middle and a bisected polycystic kidney on either side. You can see that the most significant manifestation of ADPKD are the presence of cysts uh, and in the context of increases in kidney size. Some of these cysts are hemorrhagic. As you can see around the cortex, they're quite dark. The other thing you can see is that the cysts are focal in nature. Uh, this is not a diffuse disease, but a focal disease. So even though this disease begins at time of conception, disease progression in ADPKD is slow. It takes decades and decades before a clinical presence 
occurs. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Chapman, for that wonderful overview. And I'll move into the imaging of ADPKD. Um, and as we kind of learned in medical school, uh, that we generally describe um, ADPKD as autosomal dominant uh, polycystic kidney disease or autosomal recessive uh, polycystic kidney disease in two general kind of categories. And you can see that when we see the imaging manifestation, um, ADPKD is generally um, associated with enlarged kidneys of varying sizes, where when we do see the autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease at imaging, um, which we rarely do, um, just because of um, the disease process, we see that the cysts are generally smaller uh, and more uniform in size. Um, so imaging is essential for the diagnosis, but can be very nonspecific. Um, various morphologies um, can, can um, result from a single um, etiology. And similar appearances from um, different etiologies uh, occur as well. So it's very important, as Dr. Chapman had alluded to, to identify the family history, the clinical presentation, and also look at other organ involvement. The imaging modalities that we use to diagnose ADPKD uh, generally is family history plus um, some sort of imaging finding. Uh, in, in most cases, that's going to be ultrasound. Greater than 98% of at-risk individuals are uh, identified by age 30 using ultrasound um, as the most common modality. When we talk about imaging follow-up, uh, we generally would like to use MRI. Um, and that's the most commonly used just because, as I previously said, we're diagnosing these patients at age 30. And MRI does not uh, utilize ionizing radiation like CT does. Um, and it serves as a novel uh, surrogate, kind of a biomarker for kidney disease uh, to determine clinical endpoints for both um, identifying the disease severity and also for clinical trials. Um, we use a lot of other modalities to identify the complications that are associated with uh, ADPKD, uh, such as dual energy CT. We can help characterize some of those stones that uh, was previously mentioned. We can also identify hemorrhage or even tumor uh, involvement and sometimes infection uh, when that happens to some of the complicated cysts. Here's a nice uh, slide uh, that shows the different imaging modalities. In the top left-hand corner, you can see how the typical appearance of uh, ADPKD with ultrasound, with you have cysts that are of varying size and uh, mostly are going to be anechoic, but some of them can be complicated by hemorrhage or protein. Uh, on the top right, you can see a non-contrast CT and a contrast-enhanced CT. Again, you can see the multiple cysts of enlarged uh, kidneys of, uh, with cysts of varying size. On the bottom right, you'll see a T1-weighted uh, non-contrast-enhanced MRI. Uh, and the very bottom right, you'll see a T2-weighted uh, MRI 
that shows uh, the cysts both in the kidneys and uh, in the liver. So imaging findings of uh, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, um, there's a lot of variability like Dr. Chapman had talked about. We can see um, these two patients here that one has uh, the type one mutation and the other one to the right has the type two mutation. Uh, these are at similar ages, but you can see that the PKD1 mutation, the cysts are already enlarged and they, um, the kidneys are massively enlarged as well. Uh, whereas the PKD2 uh, mutation, the kidneys are not as enlarged uh, with, with more of a limited involvement of cysts. Furthermore, um, even within a patient, you can see that uh, you may have unilateral disease uh, where one kidney is affected and the other is normal, uh, or you may even have focal or um, segmental disease involving the kidney. So uh, you'll see in this case example that there's only involvement of the lower pole of the right kidney. Sometimes you'll even have uh, genetic abnormalities that are closely related. So here's an example of uh, polycystic kidney disease with tuberous sclerosis. You can see that there are both cysts and fat-containing uh, angiomyolipomas, or AMLs. Um, just to review a few things that uh, Dr. Chapman had said, um, most of the patients that we encounter in daily practice are going to be uh, PKD1 patients, but we'll also see the PKD2 patients. Uh, but you can make these general generalizations that if you see a younger patient with lar enlarged kidneys, multiple cysts, um, they are probably going to be the uh, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, um, the type 1. And if they're older um, and they have smaller cysts, um, you could Again, in general, you might be able to think uh, that they are the type 2. But again, these it's very heterogeneous, and there's really, at this point, no way to determine if you have a, a type 1 or type 2 um, mutation uh, other than having a genetic test performed. Uh, but again, you can see at the bottom of this slide the side-by-side -side comparison. Um, in the bottom left-hand corner, you can see a young individual with in the teens, 20s, uh, small cysts, the kidneys are still of normal size, where um, when they get into the 40s and 50s, they have enlarged kidneys with um, multiple, multiple cysts. And to the right, you'll see a patient that has the uh, type 2 mutation. And at age 50, uh, they, their kidneys are not as enlarged uh, but they do have multiple cysts of varying size. And then once you get to age 79, um, they start getting to um, the more typical pattern that we see and associate with when we think of autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Here again, just to um, illustrate that point, once again with MRI, here are coronal T2 weighted images um, side by side, both 43-year-old males, uh, but you can see the phenotypic variability of the disease process here. Uh, mosaicism uh, just refers to uh, the process where 
the patient may actually have uh, both normal and abnormal uh, genetic mutations or non-mutations. And you can see, again, what we previously described where you get the autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease affecting just one kidney or affecting uh, just a segment of each kidney. And this classification system uh, to describe the phenotypic heterogeneity uh, was developed by the Mayo Clinic um, where you can see that they describe ADPKD as unilateral, segmental, asymmetric. They also use the word lopsided. Um, and then sometimes they have uh, ADPKD atypical, uh, where you have either atrophy of both kidneys or atrophy of just one kidney. Just a Quick reference to uh, autosomal dominant polycystic liver disease um, and contrasting that with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Um, both have hepatic cysts. The polycystic liver disease has very few renal cysts. They will both have renal cysts, but uh, nothing compared to what we see in autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. We often see a lot of cysts in the liver. Uh, with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, but it's typically later. Some of the other associated cysts that we uh, identify in autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease are pancreatic cysts that we see in 5%. Uh, sometimes we also see seminal vesicle cysts in our male patients about 40% of the time. This is not associated with ovarian polycystic disease. Here's just an example of uh, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Um, on the left, the coronal MRI, and to the right, you can see that there are these two seminal vesicle cysts with the arrows pointing to them uh, and down uh, within the pelvis. So Dr. Chapman, I'm gonna um, come back to you as far as the diagnosis of uh, ADPKD. Okay, thanks Dr. Lee. So to start with, um, it's important to Remember that ultrasound is typically our imaging modality, modality that's used to diagnose ADPKD. It's um, inexpensive, it's accessible to all, and uh, cyst number uh, really does drive the diagnosis. Um, because approximately 15% of individuals do not have a positive family history, we separate the cyst number criteria for a diagnosis of ADPKD into those with a positive family history, meaning an affected parent, and those without a family history, meaning that neither parent has been diagnosed. So for those with a family history, and because PKD2 is milder than PKD1, um, one really does need to wait until the age of 40 years to definitively say with imaging that someone is unaffected with ADPKD. If someone has a family member, a parent, and they're at risk for having ADPKD, and they're younger than 40 years of age, at least three cysts distributed bilaterally is needed to make a diagnosis. And because simple cysts increase in the general population with age, the number of cysts required to make a diagnosis in older individuals with ADPKD increases as well. So for those between 40 and 60 years of age, four cysts distributed bilaterally 
is required. And for those over 60 years of age, at least eight cysts distributed bilaterally is required. Now, as you've seen from all of the beautiful images that have been shown to you by Dr. Lee, most of these patients have far more than this number of cysts. And so it's usually quite straightforward to make a diagnosis. And I think something that is really important to consider here is that renal enlargement is a key and unique feature of ADPKD, even though it's not included in the diagnostic criteria. So because um, there are a number of people that do not have a family history or they're adopted and it's unknown, um, when someone comes with the question of whether or not they have ADPKD, the number of cysts required to make a diagnosis in those individuals is much, much more. So they need to have at least 20 cysts distributed bilaterally, and they need to have a consistent phenotype. That consistent phenotype will include something like polycystic liver disease, uh, as was mentioned, perhaps cysts in the pancreas, perhaps seminal vesicle cysts, and if it's unclear that there, if, whether or not there is a consistent phenotype, this may be where imaging alone is not sufficient to make a diagnosis. So if we look at how the cyst number criteria work, we can look at it both as a negative predictive value or a positive predictive value. And so you can see on the left here, this age difference in severity shows up so that if someone does not have a cyst and they're relatively young, the chances of that person having PKD1 are less than someone with PKD2, just because cysts show up much later in PKD2 individuals. Similarly, if someone has cysts and they are under 40 years of age, the predictive, positive predictive value for this is very high in both groups. Uh, and it's only until someone reaches the age of 40 that there is 100% sensitivity uh, for the presence of ADPKD. So how do we follow these individuals? This is a very nice graph, very similar to a previous image that you saw. And again, it's really important to note that these four individuals all have the same serum creatinine. It's all normal. It's all 0.9 milligrams per deciliter. And if we were only to follow kidney function in ADPKD, we would not be able to see the differences in cyst burden. You can see in these progressively enlarging kidneys that cyst burden is increasing more and more and more as the different individuals get older. At some point, the kidney can no longer compensate and residual kidney function disappears and estimated GFR declines. So cyst burden is increased for decades before there's any loss in kidney function in ADPKD. And a measurement of that cyst burden, meaning total kidney volume, has become the most important predictive biomarker for this disorder and it's FDA approved uh, for clinical trial enrichment. When we were uh, beginning the CRISP study, which is still going on today, individuals were recruited into the study who were relatively young, who had not yet lost much kidney function. And the population was saturated with clinical risk factors for progression to renal failure. 
So two thirds of the CRISP population needed to either have early onset hypertension or detectable proteinuria. At the end of the first three years of CRISP, kidney volumes were mapped out for each individual in the study. And there were 241 individuals who started in CRISP. And what you can see here are curvilinear growth curves, each individual, that are slightly different from each other, but they're consistent within that individual. And there are some individuals on the left-hand side of the graph who have very aggressive disease and very large kidney volumes, even though they're less than 21 years of age. On the other hand, there are a number of individuals on the lower right-hand side who have relatively small kidneys that are not growing very fast at all. The other thing you can see is that if you take the graph of cyst volume, you can pretty much superimpose that graph over kidney volume. And this suggests that the renal enlargement that we see in ADPKD is due solely to the increase in cyst volume. Now we expected that um, the PKD1 patients in CRISP would have bigger kidneys than the PKD2 patients. And in actual fact, they do. They are significantly bigger, but what's fascinating is that they grow at exactly the same rate. So we went back and counted the number of cysts in the kidneys of PKD1 and PKD2 patients. And the PKD2 patients have approximately 40% fewer cysts than PKD1 patients. So the differences in disease severity between PKD1 and PKD2 individuals is really due to cyst number, not to rate of kidney growth. Thank you, Dr. Chapman. Where my, my experience with measuring um, total kidney volume started. So uh, working with my nephrologist here at the University of Kentucky, uh, he originally approached me and asked, can you give me um, kidney, kidney volumes for my uh, polycystic kidney disease patients? And my immediate visceral reaction was uh, probably not because that um, segmentation was mostly manual at that time. Um, and that would add anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes to reading a study uh, that I could otherwise um, be done in maybe five to 10 minutes. So um, it really added, you know, doubled the reading time to that. But we looked at the uh, papers that were being published by uh, the CRISP uh, group, uh, Dr. Chapman's group, and came to realize that we could, in fact, use the ellipsoid formula uh, for clinical purposes. Um, so really, um, we already do this in radiology quite a bit in different uh, areas. Uh, when we measure kidney volumes for donors, um, we often use the volume of an ellipse. When we measure volume for ovaries, we also use um, uh, the the formula for an ellipsoid. Um, so here you can see that we do the exact same thing for the autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. We do three perpendicular measurements. Uh, we choose the coronal plane for uh, the CC measurement, the coronal uh, cranial caudal dimension. Uh, we go transverse and um, anterior posterior using the axial images. And you can see that uh, we use this uh, formula at the bottom, bottom 
but most radiologists have this memorized and just have simplified the pi divided by six and realized that you just take all those three-dimensional measurements and you multiply it by 0.52. Um, now, if you don't want to do that, you can go to uh, some of these websites and you can type in uh, some of the um, measurements in millimeters here and it will calculate the total kidney volume. You can also, um, and it will go ahead and sum it as well. Uh, you can also add in the height, which will um, normalize it for that patient. Uh, and what I want you to see here is that um, it really, uh, using the Mayo classification of total kidney volume, um, it puts people in class uh, A through E. And what um, I didn't realize um, when I st first started doing these uh, volumetric measurements for my nephrologist was what their um, idea was, was to identify these patients that were in class 1C, 1D, and 1E um, as those that were rapid progressors, as people that they knew that they needed to keep an eye on clinically or even start uh, therapeutics um, because even though their renal function was normal, um, these people were identified as um, at-risk individuals um, based on their total uh, kidney volume. So uh, it really was eye-opening to me how um, really just three measurements and a simple formula could add so much to the patient's care. Now, when you start reading, um, and this is what I did initially when I was approached to do kidney volumes, you'll read uh, that the CRISP study used uh, sterology uh, for their measurements. And most of this um, is used for research uh, purposes uh, at this point. But uh, as radiology grows and artificial intelligence, a lot of these uh, applications will become more and more available to us. And will be able to apply it in our daily work. They also talk about uh, planimetry. Uh, you'll see a lot of papers on planimetry and how um, if you manually or semi-automatically um, trace that border of the kidney, you'll be able to identify the volume uh, with more accuracy. And here you can just see that um, as far as time, accuracy, and reproducibility, um, you can go from left to right where the ellipsoid uh, measurements have the least amount of time commitment, uh, but also will have the least amount of the, the worst performance as far as reproducibility and accuracy. And when you go over from sterology into planimetry, um, you get more and more accurate, uh, more and more reproducible, but also you'll notice that uh, the time commitment goes, uh, goes much higher. Um, here you can just, um, these are some slides that were provided by our colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, they have automated total kidney volume measurements that they're developing. Uh, and this hopefully will be available in a broader sense, not just in research cent uh, centers, where we'll be able to apply this in everyday clinical practice. As far as complications for AD, PKD, there are a lot of things that we um, definitely are on the lookout for. Um, often patients will present with pain, hematuria, and fever, and typically um, those are associated with, that's a sign that there may be uh, cyst hemorrhage. Uh, as you can see on this ultrasound, um, the red arrows indicate an area of uh, likely hemorrhagic uh, conversion of a simple cyst. 
Um, here, again, you can see the hyperattenuating area surrounding a cyst uh, that suggests that there has been hemorrhage. And a lot of times you'll need serial examinations. So you'll be comparing the patient's prior exam to the current exam when they're presenting with pain. And you'll use that to identify whether the patient, uh, whether we can find or narrow down the reason for the patient's presentation. Here again, where you can see a cyst actually ruptured, the area of increased attenuation indicated by the red arrow shows or suggests that there's hemorrhage. You can also see that there's asymmetric perinephric uh, fat stranding or edema um, that also indicates that that cyst has undergone either hemorrhage or some other complication. Another complication that Dr. Chapman had mentioned was stone formation. Um, later on in the disease process, we see stone formation up to uh, in up to 20% of those patients. And a lot of times they are uric acid stones, about 50% of the time. And that's where dual energy CT can uh, help us identify uh, uric acid versus non-uric acid stones. Um, and uh, as you can see in this uh, coronal reformatted image here. Another common uh, process that we see or complication is infection with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Uh, sometimes we see the cysts have air fluid levels, which would suggest a gas forming organism. Uh, some of the times the cysts have perinephric edema. Um, so a lot of times it will mimic a cyst hemorrhage and it's really the clinical uh, presentation that allows us to differentiate between the two. Um, another complication, um, although um, ADPKD is not associated with an increased risk factor, risk for renal cell carcinoma, it doesn't mean that they do not have renal cell carcinomas. And the challenge really with ADPKD patients is that their kidneys are so complicated. So they have many cysts with many varying attenuations on CT or signal intensities on an MRI. And your job as the radiologist is to determine which one um, could potentially have neoplasm within it. You can see uh, we have an ultrasound example here where there is a complicated cyst with vascularity in an area of soft tissue uh, echogenicity uh, shown by the color Doppler imaging. Here on the coronal MRI, you can also see that there's a soft tissue within the cyst wall on the, in this right kidney. And if you give contrast, you can see that cyst wall enhances with the mural nodule. Here's an additional patient on the left kidney. Uh, you can see again, there's a distinct cyst with soft tissue instead of uh, cyst fluid or hemorrhage. Occasionally, uh, you will use your diffusion weighted imaging, which can really help you distinguish between those just hemorrhagic or complicated cysts versus those who may have converted into renal cell carcinoma. So with that, I'm gonna go to Dr. Chapman um, on the treatment of ADPKD. Thanks, Dr. Lee. So I'm going to talk to you starting with a case presentation and we're going to use some of the imaging tools that Dr. Lee just reviewed so nicely with you. So we're going to talk about a 38-year-old woman 
She has a normal serum creatinine of 0.9 milligram per deciliter, which translates to an estimated GFR of 81 ml per minute. She has a height TKV measured, and we correct TKV to height um, when we do the Mayo classification so that she actually has a height TKV of 1,987. Now, as I showed you before, there's a curvilinear growth curve that's unique to each individual and it's constant. So we can use this one data point, one point in time, and determine how fast these kidneys are growing, assuming that at the beginning of life, patients had a normal kidney size. So for this young lady uh, at the age of 38, you can see on the Mayo classification, her height-corrected TKV is shown with a dot, and she sits in the most severe classification, 1E, and it's highlighted with an arrow. So it's not surprising that she does have a PKD1 mutation, and her PKD1 mutation is a truncating mutation, the most severe form of mutation that you can identify. So she sits in a high-risk, rapidly progressing patient with ADPKD. So we can take this patient and we can look at her annualized growth rate. And if someone is a 1E patient, uh, they grow more than 5.5% per year, which is equivalent to about 80 to 90 ml per year, which is equivalent to about a half a kidney per year. So they're growing very rapidly. And you can see in this individual that when she started tolvaptan therapy, um, there was an immediate sharp decline in the rate of her total kidney volume growth. And then as time went on, she uh, came back into a growth rate, but a much reduced growth rate at 4% per year, again at 4% per year, and then slightly less at about 3.5% per year. So this is one way to use total kidney volume as an estimate for effectiveness of therapy when one looks at the rate of kidney volume growth per year. So um, Tolvaptan was approved for patients with rapidly progressive disease in April of 2018. And based on a number of molecular pathways, there are a number of different drugs either being tested preclinically in animal models or in humans in phase two or three clinical trials. Uh, as I mentioned, the vasopressin V2 receptor antagonist, Tolvaptan, was tested in the TEMPO trials. There have been tyrosine kinase inhibitors that have been tested uh, there have been somatostatin analogs uh, and statins that uh, activate GS proteins that have been tested. There are mTOR inhibitors uh, targeting um, cell cycle regulation. And there have been drugs that block the cystic fibrosis transduction channel, as well as potassium channels, uh, known to inhibit uh, fluid secretion into cysts. Uh, more recently, there has been uh, uh, activity in clinical trials looking at bardoxalone methyl as well. So thanks again for all the, the great insight. Um, I'm just going to 
sum up our talk uh, with a few takeaway, uh, key takeaway points. So um, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease has an incredibly wide range of phenotypic variability. And I think um, we've illustrated a lot of the, uh, the variability that we encounter on imaging. And uh, both Dr. Chapman and I um, spoke to the measurement of TKV as being the best biomarker for staging and predicting disease progression currently. And really, um, the reason that we're here together is to emphasize the importance of a strong uh, radiologist-nephrologist relation relationship, um, providing the necessary information to aid in patient care. So with that, uh, Dr. Chapman, I'd like to invite you to describe some of the um, relationships that you've built at your own institution with radiologists and how those interactions have gone. Sure. So, um, you know, I think there, that it's really an important relationship, particularly in polycystic kidney disease. Um, you know, we've worked hard with our uh, abdominal imaging specialists in the Department of Radiology to really try to refine the information that we get at the time of uh, diagnostic imaging. Um, and that being what we've really been able to fortunately be able to get is a pretty consistent report where uh, we get a total kidney volume measurement. Um, we can do it ourselves uh, on our PAC system, but I think it's always much better when a radiologist does it because that's what they have the experience and the skill to be able to do. So that's been one key relationship um, that we've developed. Um, the prognostic issues, I think, fall more in my court to get back to the radiologist about, but the radiologists are now going to the Mayo classification and plotting the data and actually providing an estimate of whether or not a patient is a 1A, B, C, D, or E. Um, they're also very helpful at telling us that if it's atypical PKD, that we really shouldn't be using the Mayo classification at all. Right. Um, so, so that's also been very, very helpful. Um, the treatment in ADPKD, um, as you saw on the case, and also based on the rate that these kidneys grow, um, we don't image that frequently. Um, usually at the most every other year. Um, but when we do, we do reach out to the radiologists and ask if they could possibly do a comparison measurement just to see. And then obviously for all the complications, we, we rely heavily on our radiologists to help us, you know, see the stone, see the hemorrhage, tell us whether or not they think there's an air fluid level or if there's a suspicious mass in the kidneys. So yeah, it's a really important ongoing collaboration and partnership. Right. And, you know, we shared some similar uh, interactions here at the University of Kentucky. I think I mentioned it earlier uh, when the nephrologist asked me for the first time to do total kidney volume. Um, I was a, a bit hesitant, but after reviewing some of the literature and really um, working with him, I understood the importance of it. So, you know, that was very good of him to really take the time to um, explain to me the importance of providing that measurement in patient care. 
And one of the things that we were able to do um, just because we were starting it from the ground up and any radiologists that are interested in doing this and starting it at their own program is that we built a MR imaging protocol that was very abbreviated um, and, and followed the uh, recommendations that were outlined in some of the, uh, the CRISP papers that um, have come out where we just really did um, a non-contrast MR of the abdomen. Um, and again, you know, the, to, for a radiologist, it's, it's almost before we used to fear the, <laughs> the autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease because we knew we had to look at every single one of those cysts, try to identify any complications. And we still do that. Uh, but um, we didn't find those complications too often. But to have that added value of being able to provide something that you can use as a nephrologist to really make a decision upon that patient really can and gave us more insight into how we are contributing to the, to the care of that patient. Um, and again, what you were talking about, um, standardized reporting, um, knowing that when we see an autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease patient, that that's something that is automatic now, that we're going to give you a, um, a total kidney uh, volume so that you can make that decision and not have to, you know, take time out of your busy day to ask for um, just a simple measurement. So um, that's something that if, again, working together closely with your um, nephrologist-radiologist relationship, developing that um, both the imaging protocol and the report is, is very important. Um, one question um, I have for you, Dr. Chapman, as far as um, do you ever encounter where the radiologist may be the first person who discovers the disease process and um, then you go back and maybe, you know, the patient's family actually did have kidney disease, but maybe was never diagnosed with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease? Yeah, that absolutely does happen. Um, you know, we've even actually had people who've been evaluated for other medical problems happen to be diagnosed at the time. So usually there's some reason that they needed to get imaged. Um, I can think of one recent case of a gentleman who had a um, descending uh, aortic dissection uh, and they imaged the abdomen because it continued down to the renal artery and they discovered polycystic kidney disease. And he actually did have a family history. Um, another good example is someone who had been followed for many years um, for sarcoid and was actually getting ready to undergo lung transplantation and they discovered polycystic kidney disease. So, you know, you can find it, um, but something has to trigger the need for some imaging. Um, one area that I was hoping could potentially develop further in radiology is this idea of um, a rapid scan. You know, I think it's done for other uh, types of lesions like pancreatic cysts where patients need follow-up and they get a very brief image done. Um, and if we were able to have something like that, as you were saying, you do at your institution where you get it done in a very short period of time, right. uh, we would probably image people sooner on therapy right. than we do right now. Um, I mean, it's somewhat cost prohibitive to do the full 
MR of the abdomen. And so I think that's part of the reason we wait that two year interval to think about imaging. Right. And you're, you're touching on something that um, is kind of beyond my expertise, but, and, and there is a, a push for um, a abbreviated MRI um, billing code um, where uh-huh. we hope that that will, you know, we're doing most MRIs of the abdomen take anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes on the table, but mm-hmm. the, abbreviated MRI, the hope is that we um, can use this in multiple different areas, like you were talking about the rapid, but um, charge the patient less because it really does take less time, uh, both MR imaging um, and with interpretation as well. So I think that is definitely something in the future. And we're hoping that um, some different billing codes will come out of MRI where we can, we can utilize that abbreviated MRI um, it's kind of the buzzword that you should be looking out for, hopefully. Um, Wonderful. So, Dr. Chapman, thank you again for uh, being with us here today. I've really enjoyed our time together. I've learned quite a bit from you. Um, and this concludes our learning activity today. And thank you uh, to all the participants. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Axis Medical Education and Novus Medical Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Atsuka. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.